Howdy y'all. Welcome to another episode of Blessed Are the Binary Breakers. I come to you from Atlanta, Georgia, where my wife and I have finally moved after months of waiting for her job to finally start. Our new home is mostly unpacked. We've got our cat with us, and we're slowly getting all the appliances and stuff to actually work. When we first got here, the gas was off, and we froze through a long weekend without heat. And now the dishwasher doesn't work. We're still working on that. Despite a lot of bad luck, we are super happy here, and grateful to get to build a home together. If you want to hear more about our first week in Atlanta, you can check out a video we made. If you search Queerly Christian on YouTube, and click on the video titled, Are We Cursed? Moving Troubles. And yes, I know that's a very dramatic title. Before getting into this month's interview, I want to let you all know about a special raffle I'm holding from now until the end of December. So, I'm a poet, and I have a book of published poetry on the market, and two copies that I want to give away to you. If you're interested in a book of poems by a genderqueer poet, yours truly, all about wrestling with God and scripture and humanity, you can do one of three things to get your name entered into the raffle. First of all, you could leave a review for Blessed Are the Binary Breakers on iTunes or another platform. You can post about this podcast on social media. Um, just write your own post or you can share one of mine from off of my Tumblr, Twitter, or Instagram. Or you can donate to me to support me financially, um, which you can do on Patreon and also now on Ko-fi. I'll talk more about those financial options at the end of the episode. If you do any one of these three things, or if you want to be super cool, do all three of the things, um, you get one entry per thing you do. Just send me a screenshot proving you did it um, at queerlychristian36 at gmail.com, and I will enter your name into the raffle, um, and you might win my book. I'll randomly select two winners on the morning of January 1st, 2020. If you want to see more about what this book's all about, you could just Google Avery Smith, The Kingdom in the Rubble, and it'll show up. Anyway, that's all I've got for y'all on this side of the interview, so let's get into that. I reached out to Enrique Throne after discovering their podcast, Fruits of the Spirit, where they hold conversations about faith with queer and trans people of color. It is such an incredible show that I just had to hear more about Enrique's own faith journey. So I reached out to them, and they kindly said yes to coming on the podcast and chatting with me. And so it's to that conversation that you are about to listen. Well, my, my name is Enrique Cintron. Um, I live in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I've been uh, living in Philly pretty much my entire life, except for a one-year stint in Boston, which I did not like, so I moved immediately back home. Um, I'm Latinx. I come from a big Puerto Rican family, um, and I grew up Roman Catholic and did a lot of, like, spiritual searching throughout my life. Um and now I am a member of the Episcopal Church, and I'm currently discerning ordination in that denomination. 
Awesome. Um, I also grew up Catholic and then moved to a different denomination. Do you want to share some of your reasonings for joining the Episcopal Church, like what you enjoy about that church and stuff? Yeah, yeah, I can do that. Um, yeah, so I, I came out when I was about 14. Um, I, I came out as gay first, and then later in life I came out as non-binary. Um, and I still kind of use the term gay mm -hmm. for myself as well. Um, but I, when I came out the first time, I had this like kind of immediate realization that there was going to be tension between the person that I knew myself to be and that I knew in my heart that God created me to be, um, and the person that the church wanted me to be and that my family wanted to, me to be, which was, you know, a cishet man. Yeah. <laughs> um, so for a little bit, I, I tried to really find my place in the Catholic church and it just was a really hard um, process for me. And I realized that, you know, God is ultimately bigger than any one institution and that mm if I want to pursue a relationship with the divine, I don't have to be stuck in this, this place that I feel like I can't bring my whole self into. And so I remember watching an episode of the Simpsons and there's this episode where Lisa becomes a Buddhist. Oh, okay. And, um, I, you know, I saw this episode and it made this like really big impact on me. Cause I was like, Oh, like this, I feel like I have permission to, you know, do this like spiritual exploration. So, um, I explored all different kinds of like faiths and, um, traditions for about a decade. Um, and then in 2016, I had this kind of like moment of unraveling and I was questioning a lot of the things that I had come to believe at the time. Um, and I, had I had dated somebody who was Episcopalian mm. and he gave me a copy of the Book of Common Prayer, which is our kind of like one of our foundational documents. It's what we use in our liturgy and it's, you know, kind of the backbone of our denomination. And at the time, I didn't really read it, honestly, because I was like not really interested in Christianity. Mm -hmm. um, so I just kind of let let it collect dust on my shelf. Um, but when I had this moment of like questioning, I had this weird prompting to open that book, mm. you know, and it was just, it was odd because like I literally had opened it once, put it on my shelf and then kind of forgot about it. Yeah. Um, but I was like, let me just take a look at this book. Um, and I remember opening to um, one of the, collects which um collects are like prayers that collect everything which is why they're called collects so i opened up to one of the collects and it was during um lent and the collect was um this prayer of i think the line in the prayer was like lead those who have gone astray back to your fold or something like that it had that kind of mm. language in it and i was like that's weird that i like opened it to this you know, page yeah. that's talking about coming back to something. And so from that moment, I was kind of like, you know, maybe I could 
give the whole Christianity thing a try again. Because at that time I had made um, friends who were queer and Christian and I kind of saw the ways that they had reconciled their identities with their faith. And, you know, I feel like that kind of gave me a model um, to do that, that worked for myself. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, you know, maybe I can try out the Episcopal Church. So I ended up going to this church um, in downtown Philadelphia. And I think what I what I really liked was that because the Episcopal Church retains like so much of the traditions of the ancient Catholic Church, um, that that was really like resonating for me because I was like, oh, this this is all familiar to me. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's in this environment that's a lot more inclusive. You know, it was like. I was seeing a woman up at the altar instead of a man. Mm -hmm. Um, And not only a woman, but a queer woman at the altar. Oh, that, yeah, awesome. Yeah. So So, it's the best of both worlds. You get that ancient tradition with a more sort of, yeah, like actually including everyone at the table. Right. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, from that point, I was just, you know, I, I kept going to church and, I was like, I think this is where I'm supposed to be. It just, mm-hmm. it felt right. Um, and that was three years ago. Mm-hmm. And wow. And so in that short time, um, not only have you returned to Christianity and found a place where you feel at home, but you also said you're sort of discerning a call to ordained ministry. Yeah. Um, that's awesome. Do you want to sort of share what that call feels like to you and does your online ministry um is that involved in it because i know you do a lot of spiritual work on social media yeah um i guess so i mean my my call is something that i've honestly i've felt since i was a very small child um i remember like being in mass like as a six or seven year old and I would be like watching the priest at the altar, like saying all the prayers and consecrating the bread and the wine and stuff. And I was like, I want to do that. Mm. Um, which like looking back is probably like a weird thought to have at that <laughs> age. Um, you know, and I like, I tell that story on dates and like, you know, guys that I go out with are like, okay. <laughs> um, so, you know, like, it's something that I've I've felt from a very early age and the more that I've like sat with it and I've like, you know, done prayer with it. Um, I've also like, I did an internship a few years ago where I was working at a parish and helping my supervisor who was the priest in charge of this like very small parish in Massachusetts. Um, she kind of gave me like the full taste of like what it's like to be a priest. Mm. Um, and those experiences just kind of confirmed for me, like, yeah, this is actually what I want to do. Yeah. Um, and what I feel is right for me. Um, so, you know, I think it's it's something that is still, you know, a little bit unconventional for a, not just a queer person to go into ministry, but um, for someone like me who is brown and non-binary, mm-hmm. you know, I'm I'm still not considered kind of like the the average candidate. Right. You know? Yeah, for sure. Um, and a lot of times when I'm in faith spaces, people don't really know what to do with me. Mm. Um, 
so I'm still kind of trying to find my way into um, kind of like staking my my place in in those spaces, which has been a little difficult, but I I know that it's it's part of the process. Yeah, yeah, that is. It's always really frustrating, especially in a church like you said. You found that aims to be inclusive of everyone, yeah. um, and yet it can still be hard. They still struggle to figure yeah. out, like what you said, like where to put you and stuff. Right. Um, would you be comfortable, sort of, um, explaining that a little further, like what that experience is like? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's it's mostly just been because. You know, the Episcopal Church is a very white denomination. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's something that I feel like a lot of church leaders are grappling with and trying to make sense of and work to kind of like work against it, you know. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when I when I first started seeking, I was going to like a church in the city that is very, very white, very wealthy. Um, and I would... You know, like, I mean, I tried to really feel at home in that particular parish, but it was hard because people would make comments about, mm-hmm. you know, like mission trips and stuff that they would do to mm-hmm. Central America. Mm-hmm. And they would make these comments about the people living in those countries that were very problematic. I would bring it up to people in leadership and they would be like, oh, well, you know, we can't really say anything to them about it. <sighs> Why not? Uh, and that's that's the question that I would ask. It's mm-hmm. like, well, why not? I mean, you know, making those kinds of comments are sinful. Why why can't you just like question them about it and tell them that it's not okay to make those comments? And I never mm-hmm. got a satisfactory answer. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, like these realities of race are are, are something. It, it's something that the Episcopal Church still has to work on. Yeah. Um, but I feel like there are a lot of conversations that are happening across the denomination that have been that are really good, and I'm excited for that. Um, but it's you know it's hard work. Um, yeah. For a while, I honestly didn't think that I was going to find a parish that I could really fit into until I found my current one, um, which I've been attending for about a year. Um, it's a predominantly black parish in. Philadelphia with really historic roots. It's been around for 208 years. Wow. Awesome. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, finding this church was really like coming home for me. Um, It just worked against like all of the like feelings that I was having at church at the time. And just like, like I was feeling really frustrated at like not feeling welcome in a lot of churches that I was visiting. And then I came to this church one Sunday and I was like, oh, like, this is completely different. This is really warm. This is really accepting and welcoming. And it was just really life-giving for Mm -hmm. me to to find this, this parish. So. That's awesome. I'm glad you found that place. Me too. Yeah. It's so important to have those sort of um, homes where you really feel welcome. Um, And if you don't mind me sort of nudging the conversation this way, because you mentioned you want to talk about your sort of spiritual work online. Um, A lot of people Mm -hmm. I find are unable to find a home faith community in like offline, you know, in the real world um, where they can go and physically be with people who fully welcome them. Um, Do you find that your online work sort of 
for me, like my online work is helping people cultivate that space online when they can't mm-hmm. have it offline. Do you sort of feel similarly? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, something that I, I notice is that folks can have this kind of perception of social media of like, it's not real. Yeah. You know, it's all like code. It's all, mm-hmm. you know, text-based conversations. It's not real. And that is just, it's not true. Mm-hmm. Um, your online community is very real. Um, it's tangible. The things that you say and the people you meet online have, you know, really deep connections. And I've made so many friends um, just through like Facebook groups or Twitter or Instagram. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was first coming back to church, I actually, um, I was like looking at, on Facebook for like queer Christian groups and I made this friend who added me to a, <laughs> I didn't realize at the time when he was adding me to this group, but he added me to a group for queer Christians who are waiting until marriage. Oh, <laughs> um, fun. And I was like, um, this isn't really for me, hmm. but I appreciate the sentiment. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, no no shade to anybody, you know, for whom that's their their spiritual disposition, but sure. it's just that's not that's not where I am. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's like even like I I was able to like make connections through that group, which is really nice. Awesome. Yeah. And yeah, it, it's it's really important for folks of faith who are queer and trans to be able to have that deep community because it's like I, I feel like oftentimes, I don't know if this is also your experience, but, you know, we are exiled from our faith communities mm-hmm. or we, we choose to leave. And so we're, we're facing isolation in, in, in that particular respect. And then a lot of times within the queer trans community, we also get this kind of sidelining of like, oh, well, you're like religious. So that's yeah. kind of weird. Like, why why are you trying to like keep up with this thing that doesn't want you. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, so I feel like we get kind of like rejected from both sides of the, of, of that. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's really exhausting, you know, because it's like, how do you find community then? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's why social media has been really great for, for not just me, but I, I know for plenty of other people who have been unable to find um, connections. Um, so this past summer, I actually started a podcast kind of like addressing that it's called fruits of the spirit. And it's where it's very similar to the show, um, Mm -hmm. where I interview queer and trans people of color about their faith journeys, because one of my, my experience has been that a lot of like progressive Christian media, even like queer and trans Christian media is still really white. Yes. Um, so I was like, I really want to create a community where queer and trans people of color can share their stories with each other and, you know, find connection and be supported. Um, so I started the show back in July, August. I don't remember exactly, but it was this summer. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's been really good. Like people are reaching out and saying, you know, the show's been really healing for me. Um, it's been really refreshing to like hear other stories like mine. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that that's what it's about. 
and it's been a really great experience thus far. Yeah, um, I actually binge listened to it, like <laughs> listened all in a row um, yesterday, and then this morning I listened to the last episode. So I've listened to all the episodes of your podcast just because it was like it was really good. And I know like I am white, and so I know it's not for me in that sort of like particular sense. Um, mm. But listening to it, I could feel that. Um, like you're right it is so needed because like I've got this podcast that I started because I felt like a lot of LGBT queer stuff is more cis gender centered than trans centered yeah. um, and I think it's also very true that a lot of it is white centered okay. for instance my podcast like I'm a white person running it um, mm -hmm. and so it just it was really cool to listen to those conversations you had with various people and just it's a really fun podcast um thank you there's a lot of laughter and joy that goes on in it that i yeah. it, it's it's fun to listen to so i definitely recommend it to anyone who's listening to this yeah thank you um so what else do you want to talk about today i don't know i guess like i'm i'm really interested i've been probing this question a lot in my mind recently of like what what Christianity looks like from a non-binary perspective. Yeah, yeah. Because okay. um, I feel like a lot of what I have tried to parse is like, where where am I in, in terms of creation? Mm. Um, you know, because it's like in, in the creation account, we have this like very binary, like God created land and sea. Mm -hmm. God created the sun and the moon. Mm -hmm. God created light and darkness. Mm -hmm. It's like cool. So, where am I? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I feel like we like as as trans and non-binary folks, we've had to really like kind of read ourselves into scripture a lot mm -hmm. and find like these little places where we've been hiding in the text. Yes. Um, and it's such like critical work for us to do that because you know we have so many people, even within I would say LGB spaces, who are like you know, well, you don't belong here, Yes. you know, whether that's implicit or explicit. Um, and so to be able to do that, that kind of work of finding ourselves in scripture, finding ourselves in theological understanding is really holy and radical. What does sort of reading trans perspectives into the Bible look like for you? Do you have any examples of places where you have um, found a sort of trans or non-binary lens has been really um, born good fruit for you in reading the Bible? Yeah, I mean, I guess even just like beginning with that that passage from Genesis mm -hmm. that I mentioned, like, I think it was Austin Hartke uh, yeah. in Transforming mm -hmm. um, wrote about it in the sense of like, yeah, we do have this very binary understanding but like just because you know we don't read about like dawn and dusk mm -hmm. being created independently um or marshes in terms of like land and sea yeah um like just because we don't read about those things doesn't mean that they're not real right for one yeah. and for yeah. two it doesn't mean that god didn't create them and behold them as good yeah. You know, because God calls everything good. Austin's book was just, it was really good for me. It was a really great book and it really kind of, because I think up until that, and up until I read that book, I was actually like kind of um, like, I don't know, I felt kind of adrift in terms of like mm. trying to understand my identity with my faith. Um, 
you know, I was just like kind of like not picky about it. Um, so that that was a really great perspective to to read from. Yeah. And something that I do honestly is um, when I'm praying at home out of the prayer book, I usually just like substitute all of the like male pronouns mm. for gender neutral ones. Nice. Yeah. And that's actually like really helped me to to have a better engagement with the Bible. Yeah. Um, because the way that um, a lot of Episcopalians pray is we say the daily office, which is similar to like the Catholic liturgy of the hours. Right. Um, and it's composed of like a couple different readings from scripture, usually like one from the Hebrew scriptures and then one from the Christian scripture, um, New Testament, and then um, usually a couple Psalms. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's just really good to like be able to 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 read them and like to sub in those pronouns. Yeah. Um, and to think of God in a much more expansive way mm-hmm. than the way that I was given as a child, which is that like God is some angry man in the sky. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, like being able to say like you to to call God they or them. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. It just makes God feel a lot more like universal and all encompassing. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Yeah. I once heard a quote that's like, if God is a man, then man is God. Like mm-hmm. that we need to keep expanding our vision of God because there's more to humanity than just men. And so right. there's more to the God who made us in God's image than just men. So, right. yeah, I agree. I feel like, that helps me a lot too, like imagining God bigger through like sort of switching up the language I use for them helps me really get a better relationship with them and mm-hmm. with creation as well. Um, to just keep remembering that like we can't ever put God in a box and say, okay, so this is a man and I'm always going to call God he. Right. Um, so when pursuing ordination in the Episcopal Church, what will that look like for you? Do you have to go to seminary and stuff? Yeah, it's there's a lot of like bureaucratic stuff that has to happen. <laughs> of um, course, of course. Um, I like like the first part of it is I meet with a committee at my current parish, and we meet a couple times, um, and then they make a recommendation to the priest and then also to the diocese and then the bishop invites you on a a discernment retreat and then the bishop kind of like makes a decision yes or no or not now and then you would apply to seminary go to seminary you have more interviews with the commission on ministry you get ordained a deacon after you get your mdiv and then you serve as a deacon for a little bit. I think it, the time is like six months or something. You serve mm-hmm. as like a transitional deacon. Um, and then you get ordained a priest. Okay. So like start to finish, it's like three to four years. Okay. That's exciting though. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think the church could definitely use a priest like you. So. Thank you. Um, God willing, I hope it happens. Yeah. Thank you. As we say in the Episcopal Church, God willing and the people consenting. Oh, of course. <laughs> yes. It's Amen. like when, whenever you're talking about like getting ordained, I feel like people always add that language in because they, they like don't want to be too presumptuous. Yeah, yeah. It's like, you know, when I get ordained, God willing and the people consenting. Um, mm-hmm. 
I don't know. It's like I'm I'm looking forward to it. It's also like I, I know a lot of people in my life who have gotten ordained also share with me about how difficult it is mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. in terms of like it being like a very intense soul searching process. Yeah. Um, so like that aspect I'm also gearing myself up for because I know yeah. that that's, that's going to be difficult and hard and it's going to make me question myself a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm also just excited because I feel like it's it's this culmination of of something that I've been feeling for a very long time. Yeah. And it like it sounds like you've already done a lot of searching, um, mm-hmm. like you've had a lot of time exploring different faiths and beliefs. Yeah. And so it might be that you've already sort of started that work and it won't be as like as devastating. Yeah. <laughs> um, One can hope. Yeah. Like that's kind of what I found when I went to like I just graduated from seminary, um, a Presbyterian seminary. And a lot of classmates were talking about how it like completely shook everything they knew. Um, but it like I think it depends on where you started when you know, once you when you start seminary, what are right. you at at that point? Because if you still have, for instance, like a very literal view of the Bible or sort of very much like you've never questioned using different pronouns for God, stuff like that. I think that's when it's like really like earth shaking compared yeah. to if you've already done a lot of that work, um, right. then it's a little easier. Right. Um, yeah. Their challenge is good, you know, like it is. Um, in one of your interviews with someone, I listened like to all the episodes, so they're all blending <laughs> together. Um, one of your friends that you interviewed mentioned this sort of this life together ministry that y'all oh, did. Boy. Um, do you want to talk about that? <laughs> It sounded intriguing. Sure, yeah. Um, So Life Together is, um, it's a program of Episcopal Service Corps, which is kind of like AmeriCorps, or I think the Catholic version is like the Jesuit Volunteer Corps. Mm -hmm. Um, Basically, like you live in intentional community and you have like a service placement. Um. And so that's why I moved to Boston, Okay, actually, mm-hmm. was to be in this program. And um, it was definitely like a, a, a life-changing experience in many ways. It was like equal parts amazing and frustrating. Mm-hmm. Um, they placed me with a very small parish in the suburbs of Boston um, called Milton, Milton, Massachusetts. And I moved there in August of 2016. And I moved into a big, big house in Cambridge, which we affectionately called 2G because our house was on 2 Garden Street. Mm. And I lived with, um, we started with seven people total. So I had six roommates. Mm -hmm. Um, By the end of the year, we were down to four people. Because folks were leaving the program and and, um, yeah, it was a whole thing. Yeah. And that was also like, it was my first time living with roommates because Mm -hmm. at that point I had never lived on my own. I had always been in my parents' house. So that was, that was also very new for me, but I actually like, I really loved intentional community. Like it it was definitely frustrating at some points, just like managing all of the different dynamics that go into living with six people. Um, you know, like we, 
fought over dishes a lot and like who was responsible for washing them. Um, <laughs> That's like, like always the big fight that happened. <laughs> absolutely. Like, you know, like other things were, were relatively manageable, like finances. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we definitely had hard conversations about like contributions to like our house mm-hmm. um, budget and stuff like that and like interpersonal relationships. But somehow it always came down to dishes. Mm-hmm. I don't know why, but that was the thing. It's always uh, the breaking point. <laughs> it's because they just pile up and they're right there. And, no, and nobody wants to do them. No one wants to do them. Yes. I, it was funny because, like, my one roommate and I were always the ones that were, we were always doing the dishes. Okay. It was usually us who, like, brought up the complaint of, like, yeah, you know, like, oh, the dishes aren't being done. Right. And it feels like we're doing them all the time. And I remember one of my roommates saying something like, you know, like, I think unless some saint is, like, going to come and do the dishes, like, <laughs> you know, I think that we just have to accept that sometimes we're going to have dirty dishes or something like that. Hmm. And I, I almost, like, hung up an icon of uh, St. Sergius Symbacus. Yes. The sink, because I was like, you know what, like, maybe this will help the dishes to get done. <laughs> I just, like, put an icon above the sink. Yes, those saints are right there watching. Watching. <laughs> Judging you for not doing the dishes yet. <laughs> so. Good choice in saints as well. Basically. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so, you know, like, that, that aspect was a little frustrating. But it was also, yeah. like, it was nice to to live with people who shared my values, mm-hmm. um, who really like committed to doing, you know, relational work, and who really wanted to like see me succeed and vice versa. You know, like I I think when you don't live in intentional community and you just have you know roommates that you like meet off Craigslist or yeah Facebook or whatever, like that's not always a guarantee that you're gonna have people who are like who are into that you know most mm-hmm. times it'll be like somebody who's like I just live here I don't want to talk yeah. to you yeah I don't want to have like a deep relationship with you just like pay the rent and do dishes mm-hmm. <laughs> so that was that was different and it was very refreshing and I really miss it a lot actually like I've thought mm-hmm. about joining an additional community here in Philadelphia but right now it's not really feasible for me mm-hmm. so my work placement was in this small parish like I mentioned in Massachusetts and it was really, it was different in really good ways. Like the church itself was very small. Like our average Sunday attendance was about 25 to 30 people. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was very intimate. Um, and that was really awesome for me as, as somebody who was, you know, thinking about going into ministry because I got to really see firsthand a lot of what goes into being a parish priest Mm -hmm. you know like I got to forge like really beautiful friendships with congregants um in a way that I don't necessarily know I would have been able to do if like the church that I was at was like 150 people a Sunday yeah you know and it was nice because like it meant that when we did stuff like bible study in people's homes like literally everyone from church was there yeah instead of like 10 or 15 people yeah Um, or at my church like two people (laughs) right (laughs) yeah and like my 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 supervisor who's still the priest there she was just she was really great she was super helpful um 
you know, she really like was like, I want you to experience everything. You're going to like go with me on, you know, nursing home visits. And you're also going to like learn how to fix the coffee machine because like that's, that's <laughs> this is what we do on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. That's ministry. Yeah. yeah. Um, fixing the Keurig machine in the office is apparently mm-hmm. also part of the job. <laughs> yeah. Yep. <laughs> so that was good. It was really great to have somebody who, you know, I still consider her a mentor um, to have that really supportive relationship and somebody who was also like really, you know, excited about the ideas that I have and really, you know, nurtured my ideas about ministry um, while also being like, and this is the reality of right. yep. what you're going to experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so really the, the one part of the experience that was difficult was like my actual program. Um, there was just, there was a lot of racial tension that mm. people weren't discussing and they weren't, you know, acknowledging in any way. Um, mm. Our program was predominantly white and there were, probably less than 10 or 12 people of color mm-hmm. um, at the time. And, you know, there were a lot of microaggressions, a lot of conversations that were happening that, you know, we would bring up and say, like, you know, like, this is really problematic. And, you know, when we brought them up, there was a lot of, like, tears and a lot of people mm-hmm. being like, you know, we're not racist. Yeah. Um you know, and it's also difficult when people are coming at it from this perspective of like, I'm really radical and I'm progressive. Like, I mm. can't possibly do anything problematic ever. Yeah. Um, like, no, we can all mess up. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I I was originally going to do a second year with the program, but like after a lot of that started coming out, I was like, I don't think I can do this. Yeah. And also like living in Boston was a lot harder than I anticipated. Um because I didn't really have a lot of friends outside of the, the program. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew like maybe one or two people. And, you know, being away from my community in Philly was really yeah. hard. And, you know, ultimately I was just like, I don't, you know, I, I don't think I can be here another year. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was funny because uh, I went to, um, the Forum for Theological Exploration, FTE, mm-hmm. uh, they have this conference every year called the Young Christian Leadership Forum, and I was invited oh, yeah. to go. So I went, and it was a really great experience. I got to meet, like, all kinds of cool people there. And um, when I was flying from Atlanta back to Boston, um, the plane landed, and the pilot was like, the next stop for this plane is Philadelphia. And <laughs> I was like, it's so weird. Um, and it was like during this time where I was like figuring out, like, am I going to stay in Boston or am mm-hmm. I going to go home? Mm-hmm. And I texted my mom and I was like, isn't that weird that like I landed and the plane was going to Philadelphia next? And mm-hmm. my mom was like, maybe that's a sign that like, yeah. you know, you should go, you should come home. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, there was also like a slight ulterior motive for my mom because she oh, was sure. yeah. like, I think I'm <laughs> home. Um, mm-hmm. But I trusted my mom's judgment. Mm-hmm. Um, so I ended up moving back after that. But, like, I still have connections with people from the program. Mm-hmm. Um, since then, the program has actually done, like, a lot of work 
to really address a lot of the, you know, the tension mm-hmm. in the program. Um, they brought in outside facilitators and they really okay. like tried to redo a lot of their programming to be um, more, you know, adamant about talking about white supremacy mm-hmm. and racism, which has been really good. And it's been really heartening to see. Yeah. Um, that's kind of helped me heal um, yeah. from my experience. I was going to say, like, I hope they do that work, like, but you didn't have to be there for that. Like, it it made it so much better if they're bringing in paid facilitators yes. who want to do that work than sort of forcing it on you. Right. It's sort of like that that conversation you had at that one church you went to where they would tell you, like, oh, we can't talk to them about that thing they said that was kind of racist. And the question being, why not? Right. Always seems to be because the white people will get uncomfortable. Right. And I'm sure I've been guilty of that before, but like that's never a good enough answer for right. avoiding the topic. So Yeah. I mean, because we can't we can't have authentic relationships with each other mm-hmm. if we're not willing to say when something hurts us. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like that's not how a regular like romantic relationship works, you know? Like sure. you can't yeah. or a friendship your- or Exactly. Yeah. So, like, why does that make, you know, these relationships that we have in community any different? Right. Um, If we want to be authentic to ourselves, we have to be willing to say, like, you know what? This is actually really hurtful to me. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. we really need to talk about it. You know, and I think people are just they're so afraid of having those conversations. Um, And it's nothing to be afraid of. Mm-hmm. Because ultimately, when you have those conversations and you can acknowledge where you did wrong and you can make amends for it, that's going to make your relationship stronger. Yeah. Because the other person is, is going to see that, like, you're willing to do that work. Yeah. Yeah. I know it's slightly different, but it, I think, it like, in terms of, like, being trans and non-binary, it's mm-hmm. a lot of times, for me, it's been around pronouns, like... Yeah do I want to remind that person that they called me she again and that I want them to please not do that? Or do I want to avoid it because they're going to make a bigger deal about it than it needs to be? Um, Have you ever had people like, I'll have people tell me like, like Avery, like I really like you, but sometimes I get scared to talk to you because I'm so scared. I'm going to say the wrong (laughs) word and hurt you. And I'm like, well, it hurts me more if you're avoiding me for this issue, like make the mistake. And we can fix it together. Don't just avoid me. Yeah. Um, so I agree 100%. Like, when mistakes are made, like, the answer isn't to avoid the issue. It's to to talk about it together. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. And to also just, like, to, to be proactive when you know mm. you've, yes. you've messed up and to, like, not make that other person do all the labor for you, yeah. too. You know? Yeah. Like, um I like my my priest at church has been really great in terms of pronouns and stuff. And awesome. something that I I really appreciate is that he like when he uses a word that's like very gendered, he like he'll, I I see it going on in his mind. His- <laughs> like he like stops and then he corrects himself. But he mm. he's not the type of person to be like I'm so sorry for using that word mm-hmm. and. Go on for five minutes about how hard it is for him. Right, (laughs) right. Because, like, the one time um, I was talking to somebody after church, and my priest came up to us, and um, 
he said something like, well, you two gentlemen. And then he like stopped and he was like, gentle people. (laughs) (laughs) Which I actually like kind of like as a gentle alternative. Yeah. Um, But, you know, he does that stuff a lot where he will just like immediately correct. It's really refreshing because Mm -hmm. you do get tired of like being like, you know, actually, I don't like it when you say dude or you call me pal or, you know, like mm-hmm. bro or whatever, mm-hmm. whatever terminology people want to use. Um, it's nice to like have that be an understanding where people don't actually have to like force you to like, you know, do that emotional labor yes. of like saying, no, it's fine. It's okay. Yeah. Yeah. I understand it's hard for you to like remember to do this. It's definitely it's so nice to have the people in your life that will fix it instead of making a big deal about it. Yeah. Yeah. Or pretend like or like they'll say it and you can tell that they noticed, mm-hmm. but they keep going quickly. Like I feel like in their head they're like, maybe they didn't notice I just misgendered them. It's like, no, we noticed. Yeah. You should fix it. We shouldn't right. have to say something. <laughs> But yeah, well, Enrique, it's been so awesome getting to talk to you. Yeah, um, likewise. Is, is there anything else you want to mention before we wrap up? Yeah, is, can I do a little promo? Is that cool? Oh, yes, please do. Well, if people want to check out like stuff that I've written, I have a website. It's EnriqueSynthron.com. Um, you can also like find me on Instagram and Twitter as Enrique Sint, C-I-N-T. Mm-hmm. And if they want to follow my podcast, Fruit of the Spirit, we're on Instagram and uh, Twitter as FOTS Podcast, and also on Facebook as Fruits of the Spirit Podcast. Awesome. Yeah. And I'll make sure to include links to all that in the episode info, too, because I think everyone should absolutely check you out, especially your podcast. Um, And then I usually wrap up with one last, if you could say one thing to trans and non-binary people of faith what would it be? Mm. I would say my, the, the thing that I, I come back to a lot is trust the process. Mm. Um, because there have been so many times in my life where I felt like I was kind of like walking with no direction mm. um, and wondering like, where am I going? Um, but I stuck it through and I got to the place where I needed to be. So just trust the process. It's going to be really hard. And, you know, there are going to be times where you're like, I want to quit. I don't want to do this. Or, you know, community is hard and like people are being really difficult. But you just have to trust it. Trust that it's going to work out. Enrique, thank you for taking the time to share some of your story and insight with us. And listeners, thank you for taking the time to hear Enrique's story with me. There's actually a little more to the conversation I had with Enrique. They told me all about the altar they have and what it means to them to connect to a whole community of saints. I like that topic so much that I actually extracted that bit of our conversation out um, and plan to include it in a separate episode of Blessed Are the Binary Breakers. It'll be an episode all about sacred spaces, and I'm hoping to get multiple voices in. So if you are transgender and or non-binary, and you want to tell me about a space that is sacred to you, whatever that might mean for you, 
from whatever faith background or religion you practice, please contact me at queerlychristian36 at gmail.com by the end of December so that I can include your story in the episode. You can tell me about your personal altar or a personal item that has spiritual meaning for you or a special connection that you have to a holy person or ancestor. If there's something specific about being trans or LGBT in general that's involved in how you experience that sacred space or object or connection, be sure to include that. And if you're not sure if your story is what I'm looking for, chances are it is. Um, But you can always email me to check before you write it out or talk it out. Oh, and also, you can send your story as an audio or video recording, or as a written transcript that I can read aloud for you if you don't want your voice to be in the episode. If you find this podcast worthwhile, please show your support by rating and reviewing it on iTunes or wherever you access this podcast. And if you can, tell your friends about it. Um, Please keep safe, of course. If it's not safe for you to do that, don't do it. Same with um, financial support. Please don't do it if you don't have the means, but if you do, you can find me on patreon.com slash queerlychristian, where you can offer me a recurring monthly donation. Every dollar helps, but the generous people who offer $12 or more every month on Patreon get a special shout-out on this show. They are Jay Gebner, Remy Page, Willow Hoving, and Ron Hartzler. Y'all are so fabulous. Thank you for your support. And now, after several requests to set one up, I also have a Kofi. I had to look up how to pronounce that word, and yeah, apparently it's Kofi. Kofi is a website that allows supporters to offer a one-time donation. So if monthly is more than you're able to do, but you would like to send a few bucks my way, just one time, um, you can go to ko-fi.com slash queerlychristian to support me that way. And just a reminder, as I mentioned at the start of this episode, if you support me on Patreon or Ko-fi, or if you rate and review this podcast on iTunes or another podcasting platform, or if you post about this podcast on your social media, you will be entered into a raffle for a copy of my book of poems, The Kingdom in the Rubble. Just send me a screenshot proving that you did that by midnight on December 31st, Eastern Standard Time, and you might win my book. Whew, okay, that was a lot of stuff to throw at you all. Thank you for listening, and have a great month breaking some binaries and being a blessing to the world with your life. <laughs>